good morning. So glad to see you this morning. It's good to see you. I'm, I'm still trying to warm up. It's cold out there. Things are a little different around here. We have some gates and some construction going on, but uh, we are thankful for the Lord and what he's doing in our church, and we're glad that you're with us. If you're new to us, thank you for being here. We hope that you feel like you're part of the family. We hope that you can just join right in with us. That is our heart. Uh, we believe that we are more of a family than just a gathering, and so we hope that you get a sense of that. We've been studying in the book of Mark for several weeks, and uh, last Sunday was so awesome because it was the first Sunday that we were together as a church, um, back together as a church, as a whole church, and we studied uh, in this text in Mark 6, and I loved it because I really felt like the Lord was saying in this text from last week, uh, this is the, the focus of your year. This is what you need to focus on, right? That we are ordinary people, just like those 12 disciples that Jesus sent out on mission. That's what he's doing in us. He's sending us out in mission, just ordinary people, right? They were fishermen, tax collectors, a zealot, not necessarily the uh, all-star bunch, right? Just normal folks, just like you, just like me. And yet the difference is they were ordinary people, but the difference is an extraordinary God. He makes all the difference, right? And he gives us his power. He puts the words in our mouth and the story in our hearts of change. And he sends us out to a world in need. And that's what he did with the disciples. And that's what he's doing with South City and you this morning. And so I'm excited to be back in uh, the book of Mark study. And now, as we look at our text this morning, um, we're going to see that it's a little different than last week's text. <laughs> it's uh, last, you know, I just love the way we, we teach through, you know, verse by verse through the book of Mark. And I don't really design which, you know, um, at all, which service, which theme we're going to teach on it, which week. So last week was perfect because it's the first time together and we get to teach about this mission of, you know, ordinary people, extraordinary God. But, but I'm so glad it didn't work out that this week's text was last week is all I'm trying to say. This is an interesting text this morning. Like, well, there's no way around it. It's, a, it's an odd story. And yet we know that all of God's word, right, is, is good for us. It teaches us. We learn from all of God's word. Yet this story this morning in Mark 6 is the only text in the, in, in the gospel of Mark that's not explicitly about Jesus. It's the only text in this gospel that's not really about him. And yet there's a lot that we can learn from it. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn over to Mark 6. And take a look at our story this morning. Mark 6, verse 14. And we're going to go all the way through verse 29. It's a little bit of a long text, but I think because of the whole, uh, I just want you to get the whole sense of the whole story. We're going to read this whole thing together, okay? So Mark 6, verse 14 says, King Herod heard of it. Now, let me just stop there, just to give us context. What has he heard of? Well, the very last verse of our text last week said the disciples were obedient to Jesus. When he sent them out, they went. And so they've gone now, they're going, they're doing miracles, they're preaching repentance to, to uh, these people they've been sent to, and, and God's doing amazing things in them. Herod has heard of this, okay? Verse 14, King Herod heard of their work. He heard of what Jesus was doing through the disciples and others. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, no, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent uh, and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, his brother Philip's wife, because he had, been, uh, he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, uh, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias, uh, her, her daughter, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. 
And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And, and she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went out, beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray this morning as we get into this story. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that all of your word is meant to educate and bless and convict and draw us to you and teach us of you. And so, Lord, we believe that's true of this story as well. So as we look at it, God, make us remind, uh, mindful of the fact that Mark is writing to these believers in Rome. And just as he's giving them the details of Herod's sordid life and family, you give those to us today. And there's something we can learn from this story, Lord, about you and about us about what Herod feared and about what we should fear. And Lord, I pray that you would bless your word, bless the reading of your word and the study of it. And God, I pray that your spirit would lead us to all truth in this text, that I would stay out of your way, Lord Jesus, that you would increase in this place and I would decrease. We need you to teach us and lead us. And we pray that you'd give us the courage to be obedient to whatever you convict us of. Wherever you draw us, Lord, we pray that we would follow. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It's kind of a strange story, huh? A little bit weird. This is just a sad story. I don't know how you get around it. It's just a weird, sad story. It's the downward spiral of the life of a godless man. That's what it is. It's the downward spiral. It's just you just see detail after detail of depravity, of sinfulness, of brokenness, and you just see why it's all falling apart, if you will. One big question that we have to ask as we get into this story is, who is this man Herod, and why has he caused the very first martyr of Jesus? That's John the Baptist. Did you think about that? The very first martyr of Jesus is John the Baptist. And so who is Herod? You've heard the name Herod the Great before. The Bible speaks of six different Herods in Scripture, and you might remember we just finished the Christmas season, and, and every time we go through the Christmas text, we, we get to the place where Herod the Great is mentioned. You remember it's when the wise men come to, to him in Jerusalem, and he's, they say, we're, we're here seeking the, the king of the Jews. He's like, oh, that's supposed to be me? <laughs> what are you talking about, right? And, and they say, well, you know, they end up going to Bethlehem, and he finds out through his, his, his the priest or whatever that they're supposed to go, the, the child is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and what is King Herod the Great do. He ends up killing all the baby boys up to two years old in the town of Bethlehem to try and eradicate this new king of the Jews. So this is the family uh, that we're talking about today, these Herods, as they're spoken of in Scripture. There's six of them that we see throughout the Bible. This one that we're looking at today is the son of Herod the Great. His name is Herod Antipas, okay? He is Herod the Great's son. Um, Herod the Great, you might, might know that he uh, was over all of the land of Israel. He, he, he ruled for about 36 years all of the land of Israel. Of course, Israel is occupied by Rome, so he's really just sort of a, a keeper for Rome. He works for Rome, in essence. And when Herod the Great died, his four sons got the, the rule of four different regions of Israel. Herod Antipas, who we're, we're studying today, or reading about today, is over the area of Galilee and Perea. That's the section that he is supposed to be over this morning. In our text, Mark calls him King Herod, but the thing that's interesting is he's not really a king, which I think is very interesting. He's not really a king, but he really wants to be called king. In fact, at one point in his history, he goes and asks, can I be called king? And they say, no. But yet, our, our writer today, Mark, 
calls him King Herod. Probably because he tells everybody to call me king. And he says he has a kingdom, but it's not much of a kingdom. He's just occupying this section of Israel for Rome. So I think it's funny. You, you think your family's a mess. This family is a complete wreck, right? And as we look at this family, you begin to see why. The first thing we see in the story is fear. And that's the one thing I kept coming back to in this story is just this mention of fear after fear after fear. And the first fear that we see with Herod is this superstitious kind of fear, right? It's what you call blood guilt. He's killed John the Baptist, and he's, he's got these crazy superstitions and guilt because of what he's done. He's heard about the ministry of the disciples and, and specifically about Jesus himself, and now he's worried that maybe this is, um, this is John come back to life because he's got all these powers, and there's this superstition. So the first thing we see is Herod's superstition. Look at it again, verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Uh, that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Something's going on. He can do miracles. It's got to be because John has been raised from the dead is what he's thinking. But there's these other rumors. No, it's got to be Elijah, right? Or, or no, you know, even, even different. It's got to be one of the prophets of old. You've got to remember there's been 400 years of silence from God's prophets in the Old Testament. And now all of a sudden miracles are being done. All these things are happening, and they're going, this is, is this one of the prophets of old? Well, what is happening here? These things that Jesus is doing. What's interesting is they gave uh, possibilities to all these three different things, right? I think it's interesting that the one they didn't consider is Messiah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting that that's not one of the things on the list? Could it be Messiah? Nope, that's not anywhere on the list. There's this weird superstition and rumor about who Jesus is, but one of the ones that is not listed is that he could be Messiah. This is all about his guilt and all about what he's done. Have you ever felt bad for something you've done? Right, you've, you do something bad, you've made a bad choice, and then all of a sudden everything around you is because you did it. Oh gosh, that's because I did the thing. Oh, this is happening because of whatever, right? Sometimes we have a, a suspicious guilt in the same way. And we begin to see throughout the story all these different aspects of fear. But the sad reality of Herod's life is the fear that we see in Herod doesn't lead to surrender. It doesn't lead to change. And it doesn't do any good. Look at the second thing in Herod's life. We see a sinful life. We see the details of a sinful life. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. This is a messed up, sordid family. Because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and he, yet he heard him gladly. So what's interesting is, if you remember in our study of Mark, the very first verse in Mark is this proclamation of who Jesus is. Remember that? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's verse one of Mark. This is the, this is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ meaning Messiah. This is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But verse two in Mark begins to tell us about this character, John the Baptist. That John the Baptist is spoken of in prophecies in Isaiah and that John the Baptist will be a forerunner to Jesus in all these different ways. So, so Mark is beginning to tell us about John the Baptist. And he keeps going up until about verse 14 in chapter 1. And then he says, John is thrown into prison. Well, the reason he goes to prison is because he's been calling out the sinfulness of Herod Antipas. And this woman, Herodias. He's been saying, you, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't have your brother's wife. It's against the law. What he's speaking of is a law in, in Exodus chapter 18, specifically verses 16 and 17. It says, you shouldn't uh, uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. You shouldn't have an affair with your brother's wife. And prophetically interesting, verse 17 says, 
you shouldn't uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, which in a little bit later in the story, as we're going to see, is another part of the sinfulness that we see of this family and of this evil, evil man. Jesus called John the Baptist, something I still can't hardly wrap my brain around. In Matthew 11, Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived. Isn't that interesting? He said he's the greatest man ever born of woman. So what's interesting is we look at John the Baptist's life and we look at Herod's life, they are polar opposites. They are exactly the opposite of what you would think. John, in many ways, is just completely different. He, he owned nothing. He was homeless, right? He, he ate bugs and honey. <laughs> Strange, right? Look at, look at Herod. Herod called himself king. Right? It was all about him and how he was seen. He had palaces. He had anything he wanted. John was bold. He was courageous. He was godly. Herod was a coward. Herod was fearful. Herod was evil. I like what... Daniel Aiken says, he says, John was a man of great courage and moral fiber. Herod was not. John loved God and boldly proclaimed his word. Herod did not. John denounced sin and called people to repentance and a radical change in life. Herod murdered an innocent man, a prophet of God, and it haunted him. And rightly so, John's blood was on his hands. Then Mark begins to kind of list out some of these details of the sinfulness of his life. Uh, again, I said this family is messed up, and boy, is it ever. So he's captured because he's calling out the sin of Herod and his wife, his now wife, Herodias. Now, what he's done is he's taken, he's, he's taken his brother Philip's wife. Now, before you even know about that, though, what you need to understand is Herodias, in this very sick sense... Herodias is actually Herod and Philip's niece. Herodias is the child, the daughter of, of one of their half-brothers. So there's already incest going on in the family. And then King Herod steals her as his own wife, which is wrong, and John calls this out. Well, Herodias doesn't like being called out. She doesn't like this public situation of being called a sinner. And so she wants him dead. This is long before the beheading. She wants John dead. And so to appease his wife, Herod goes and just puts him in jail. We know that Herod was, uh, John the Baptist was in prison for about a year before he is beheaded. And he was in an awful place, in a dungeon. An awful place. No sunlight for about a year. So he's called these sinful people out, and they've now imprisoned him. Herod has imprisoned him. And, and I think it's interesting. The text says that Herod is confused by John the Baptist. I can't, he can't figure John out. Who is this guy? He's perplexed, the text says. But what's interesting is, is not only is he confused by him, but he piques his interest. There's something about this man that makes me want to hear him and says he's glad to hear him. So there's this weird mixture of, I don't understand you, but I want to hear you, right? There, there's like an opening, like the closest Herod ever got to hearing the truth was here in, in some ways. But he didn't persuade him. So Mark continues the story with some of this sordid behavior. Verse 21, look with me. It says, but an opportunity, I think that's funny, but an opportunity came on Herod's birthday. And he gives a banquet for his soldiers, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Do you think that banquet was for those men? <laughs> right, that's probably what he said, but it's his birthday. He's going to throw himself a birthday party. 22nd, 22nd verse here. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste, and the king asked her, saying, uh, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
Immediately you sense just this, con- this continue to devolve into evil and, and, and gross sexual behavior and literally murder. Now, Roman parties were evil things in the first place, right? They were just basically sex-filled, drunken orgies, and they were evil. If you noticed who he's invited to the party, it's only men, if that tells you what kind of party this was. Only men that he's trying to impress in this party, the nobles, the commanders, the leaders from Galilee. And then we see his niece, again, is his wife, that he's stolen from his brother, her name, uh, he, she sends her daughter, and her daughter's name is Salome, and we know that name through the Jewish historian uh, Josephus. He gives, her, gives us her name. And this, this evil woman sends in Salome, her daughter, again, Herod's niece again, I guess, that's how, what you would call her, the child probably of uh, Herodias and Philip, and she dances provocatively for these men. And in an unrestrained lust, Herod says, whatever you want. In a drunken stupor, whatever you want, I'll give you, right? I'll give it to you. Even half of my kingdom, again, which really wasn't a kingdom. He's an overseer for Rome. So he's making these claims out of his drunken lust. And the girl goes and asks her mom, what what, what should I get? What should I ask for? And, of course, Herodias knew all along what she wanted, and that was to murder John the Baptist. So she says, get John's head. He won't say no in front of his friends. In front of the people he's trying to impress, he won't say no. Go get John's head and see what he does. And the girl adds, hey, bring it to me on a platter. This, this added depravity, this added mocking of this holy man of God brought to this evil, evil party and environment. You know, as I've looked at this, I've, I've asked the Lord, I kept looking, going, Lord, how, how do we break this down? How do we, what do we glean from this? And, and I, I started thinking about us as godly men and women, right? As followers of Jesus, as men, as women, as children, students, and I do think there's some things that we can learn in way of warning. Again, I said this is the downward spiral of a godless man, so men, Let me speak to you just for a moment. Can I give you some warning signs of what it looks like to be a godless man? And may it give you a warning as to what it it means for us to follow Christ? Let's, Let's look at him through the life and lens of Herod's life. Number one, he had no loyalty to God or his family. No loyalty. He didn't care about God and obviously he didn't care about his family. Are you a loyal, godly man? Are you willing to make a stand for Christ? Are you willing to serve and love your family. He's also lustful, conniving, adulterous, incestuous. Let these, be, let these things be things that frighten you. Let them be warning signs. And as you see these possibilities in your own life, in your own heart, say, Lord, please help me not to be this person. God, help me to move away from these realities in my life because I don't want to be that type of person. We also see that he's very prideful. He throws himself a party, right? We see that he's striving. In other words, he just wants to please the people around him. Let's get the leaders here. And I just want to please you. He's a people pleaser. Is that you? Let these be warning signs for us men and women. He allows sinful, sexual, perverted, incestuous dancing as entertainment in his home. And I just started thinking, men, what do we allow in our homes What do we allow in our minds? What do we allow on our televisions? What do we allow our children to see? What do we put before our own lives that is evil? Some some things that we don't need to let in. I remember there was a phrase I learned back when I was growing in Christ as as a teenager and as a college student. That was garbage in, garbage out. Remember that? It's kind of a computer term. And it meant whatever you put in the computer, you're going to get out of it. Well, that's your heart. That's your mind. Whatever junk you let in your life, whatever junk you let through your eyes and into your brain is the only thing that's going to come out. So let us be a people that allow God's holiness 
the good things of God, God's scripture, worship, the things that honor Christ, let those things come into our heart and mind because that's what we'll get out. If you begin to wonder why things are coming out of your life, then begin to look at what you've allowed in. Men, what do we allow into our lives, into our eyes? Let this be a warning to us. Also, we see an interesting moment here where Herod says he is sorry. What's that about? Because his sorrowfulness doesn't lead to surrender. And we're going to talk about this in just a minute, but when your sorrow doesn't lead to surrender, it does no good. What's the point? It's just a waste of time. And then ultimately, all this sinfulness leads to murder. Can I just let you know this point? And I've said this before about Romans 1. Romans 1 is an interesting study of sinfulness. And one of the first things that Romans 1 talks about in a downward spiral of sinfulness is not being thankful (laughs) You go, huh, right? And the reality is what Paul's trying to say is sometimes we, we allow little sins and little things in our hearts, not being thank, thankful, that's not that big of a deal, right? Well, but when we allow these sinful attitudes of our heart in our lives, then we begin to allow other things. Well, it's not that big of a deal. It's really popular television show. I just really want to see it. I just really want to go to it. I just really want to say the words that everybody else is saying. I want to be like everybody else. And we begin to allow this sinfulness to devolve in a downward spiral in our lives because of what we've allowed in. Okay, ladies, let me ask you this. As we look at sort of the the storyline and we think about Herodias, obviously she was unfaithful to her husband. Her sin led her to compromise her daughter, her child. There's nothing more precious to me in all the world than my children, and yet Herodias only sees her as leverage. Do you see that? And one of the most horrifying realities of this story is that she, she brings her daughter into these ungodly acts. And then another sad reality is she begins to pass down things to Salome. She passes down hate. She passes down bitterness. She passes down generational sin. You see that? How often do we do that to our children? And we allow them to see the things that we have not made right before God. And all of a sudden, guess what? They begin to own it. They begin to live out the things that we should have made right before Jesus. It's called generational sin. And my prayer is that we would see it and stop it. That we would take measures to help our children to to resolve it before a holy God. But she passes it down to Salome. Can I... I just tell you that your poison can be passed down to your children and can be their poison. When really what we need to be passing down is godliness. What we need to be passing down is truth and surrender and forgiveness and love. I love the scripture that Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. The way that he says to, uh, to Timothy when he says about his grandmother and his mother. You remember that phrase? He says, your grandmother spoke the words of life, God's word into you. Your mother spoke words of life into you. And now you have it. In essence, they've passed down to you the things that they should have passed down to you. And now you own them. Live out of those things. What are you passing down to your children? Just what you think is okay to pass down? Maybe what your mom and dad passed down to you. Is it right? Is it godly? Is it good? Because if it's not, friends, you will pass down the same bitterness, the same prejudice, the same wrong, the same brokenness, the same sinfulness that has been passed down to you. Let the chain stop in the name of Jesus now before it goes into and poisoning your children. And then I ask our children about Salome. Listen, can I just tell you when we look at this story, students, look at me for a second. You don't have to allow your parents' sinfulness to affect you. You can say, no, I don't want to be what you've been. I'm looking at my children. You can say that about me and your mom. Where they've made mistakes, I don't want to own those mistakes. 
where they have sinned, I don't want to sin in that way. I want to live my life for Christ. I want to make a stand. I don't want to be a pawn or a puppet in the hands of the enemy because that's exactly what Salome was. And you can make a stand. Don't let your parents' generational sin ruin or control your life. Stop it now and make a stand for Christ. You'll be held responsible in that way, just as your parents will. All right, then the last thing I want to bring us to in the story this, this morning is Herod's surface sorrow. It's a very interesting part of the story. Look at verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Right? You read that and you go, oh, wait a minute. Okay, something, maybe we're going to see something here. Maybe God's going to do something here that's incredible. Well, what are we going to see in this moment? The king was exceedingly sorry. But, you see that? Exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And when he beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Again, just generational sin. When his disciples heard of it, they came took his body and laid it in a tomb. You know what? Such an interesting text. Herod's feeling something. What's going on in in the heart of Herod in this moment? He's feeling something. It says he's exceedingly sorry. Some of your translations use the phrase greatly distressed. What's going on in his soul, in his heart? But because of those oaths, because he made a promise to his niece, because he didn't want to disrupt his guests or break his word in front of them, all of a sudden, he's got integrity. Do you notice that? Do you see the upside-down values here? What a mess that even in our own lives, our values get turned upside-down and we make choices for the wrong things. And his values are turned upside-down and he chooses all of a sudden to have integrity around his oath to his niece who's dancing provocatively for these men. And now all of a sudden he's going to keep his word to her in front of them. What's interesting to me is that he is the most powerful, if not one of the most powerful men in the area, and yet he's afraid of everybody else. He wants to please everybody else, but he's the king, right? And yet, he's afraid to break his promise to a teenage girl. And it leads him to the murder of God's holy prophet. Again, the weakness, the, we- the weakness of this spineless, spineless man. So Herod gives his orders. And John's head is delivered on a platter and given to Herodias. And the text ends with his disciples coming to retrieve his body. You know, I I was thinking about the fact that the prophet Isaiah says that John the Baptist, that there will be a, a, a forerunner of Jesus, and we know that to be John the Baptist, right? He's the forerunner in so many ways. He was the first uh, to be of miraculous conception, right? Zacharias and Elizabeth, Zechariah. He's the first to preach repentance before Jesus. He's the first to be arrested before Jesus. He's the first to be murdered. And yet he's the first to be laid in a tomb all before Jesus. He's finishing this task that God has given him to be the forerunner in all these things, all the way to death. I I struggled with this text, and I just kept looking God, how how do we make sense of this for us? And it's just a sad story when all the rest of the gospel is full of Jesus stories and uh, messages and miracles, and this is just full of brokenness and sinfulness. And yet, I kept coming back to the fact that it's full of fear. This story is full of fear from the beginning to the end. And so I titled the message, Who Do You Fear? See, all through the story, we see Herod's fear. We see fear that Jesus was John raised from the dead. 
We see fear that, that John was a righteous and holy man. We see fear uh, in his sorrow for actually killing John. We see the fear of breaking his promise to Salome. We see the fear of the leading men that he's brought to this party. They're watching all this go down. And sadly, Herod is consumed with fear, and yet he's not afraid of our holy God and his holy prophet. Isn't that interesting? He's afraid of everybody else, but not God. So I want to ask us this morning as we close, listen, what do you fear? Who do you fear? Because I want you to know this truth this morning. What you fear the most will determine the decisions of your life. What you fear the most will determine the decisions you make. Let me give you some examples. If you fear losing your job, then you're going to show up on time and you're going to do your best work, right? If that's a fear that you have. If you fear getting a ticket, then you're probably going to go the speed limit and try to obey the laws as you drive. If you fear getting a bad grade, students, you're probably going to do your homework, try to not get in trouble. You're going to try to not skip school as much because you're afraid. Even as I think about us as missionaries sent to the world, I ask this question, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of telling somebody about Jesus when we should be more afraid of a very real place called hell that they could go. What fear do we choose? Do we let the reality of hell be something that frightens us so much that we're willing to go through the awkwardness of a conversation with somebody who doesn't know Christ? What about our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing death in order to follow Jesus? Jeff and I were talking about this over coffee the other day. The brothers and sisters all over the world, and, and by the way, can I tell you that martyrdom is at its greatest point now than it's ever been in the history of the world. People dying for their faith in Christ. And at some point, they have to look at an executioner and say, am I going to be afraid of you to take my life? And say, no, I don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> or do they have a greater fear of God Almighty and say, Lord, I trust you. Because God has called us to have a fear, a godly, healthy fear of him. In fact, Jesus put it this way, and interestingly enough, he put it this way in, as he's sending the disciples out two by two in the Gospel of Matthew, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 28. He tells the disciples as they're going out, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What do you fear? Don't fear people. Fear God. Let that be the greatest fear, a healthy sense of fear. But here's Herod. Here's a story of Herod who's afraid of a teenage girl, who's afraid of these men that, that are subservient to him instead of a holy God in heaven that will send him and ultimately sent him to a very real place called hell. See, Herod wanted the approval of men, and I, I gotta tell you, there've been a lot of seasons of my life I struggled with this, and still do. I want you to like me, I do so much. I want you to like what God's doing in our church and decisions we're making and where we're going. I, I so want those things. But at some point, a line has to be drawn, and we have to say, you know what? I gotta move past my fear of you to be obedient of my fear of God. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul said to the Galatian church. Remember what was happening in Galatia? There were people who were coming into the Galatian church and they were saying, you need to do more to be saved. You need to be circumcised. You gotta do more. And Paul writes this scathing letter to the Galatian church, chapter one. Look what he says in Galatians chapter one, verse 10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man? In other words, Am I supposed to be worried about these guys that are preaching false doctrine to you? Or am I to be afraid of God, seeking the approval of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What Paul's saying and what I'll say to you is you can't do both. You can't serve man and please God. It cannot be done. We have to make a decision right now, every one of us. Am I going to be fearful of people? Or am I going to be fearful of a holy God in heaven 
What is my choice? What decisions does that cause me to make? We make our choice now to be followers of Christ at all costs. We fear God. It's a decision we make now that nothing is greater, nothing is more important than being obedient and surrendering to him. Nothing. If Herod had, had known this scripture from Solomon in Proverbs 14, 27, it says, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life turning a person from the snares of death. If he had had a fear of God, he might have saved his life. If you have a fear of God, it might save your life from the snares of death because it'll lead you to trust, to be concerning of how you live your life. But Herod didn't fear God, and it eventually cost him not only his life, but his soul. In some ways, and I still get troubled by this moment where it says that Herod was exceedingly sorry. He got so close. He could have made a decision. No, I'm not killing this, this man. And he gets exceedingly sorry. But Paul says this in 2 Corinthians verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 10, that speaks about two different types of grief or sorrow. Look what he says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. This is what he's saying. When you have conviction, when you're sorry, when you're saddened over your sin and it leads you to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is when you go the other direction. You've been going your way and you say, God, I'm not going my way anymore. I'm gonna be obedient to you. I'm gonna go your direction. That's repentance. When your sorrow leads you to go in another direction, God's direction, and it leads you to salvation and it leads you to life, what's beautiful here, Paul even says, then you don't even have a regret. You can look back over the brokenness of your life and go, Lord, I don't even have regret. You, you even saved me from that. But if what you have is worldly grief, if what you have is worldly sorrow, then it does no good. It does no good. Look what it says. For godly grief produces a repentance that, that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? Death. It does no good. What good is sorrow and grief? You may be feeling some now over the sin in your life, over decisions you've made. There may be a brokenness in your soul, and I pray that there is in all of us. We're sorry for our sinfulness. God, I wish I hadn't made that decision. I wish I hadn't lived this way. But what does it lead to? Does it lead you to change? Does it lead you to sorrowfulness that leads to repentance and salvation without regret, or does it do no good and lead you to death? That's what happened with Herod. It led him to death. His sorrowfulness did no good, made no difference. And I want to say this to us this morning. The concessions we make in the dark, they can determine the legacy of your life. I want to say it again because I think it's an important thing for us to think about, men and women. The concessions you make in the dark can lead to the legacy of your life. In other words, what will people remember of you? When you pass from this earth, what will be remembered of you? Will it be that you had a broken and messed up family like Herod? That you were weak, that you were addicted to evil things and ungodly behaviors? That you were a people pleaser and you cared only about what people thought? That, that you didn't honor God with your life? Or could it be remembered of you that yes, you were broken and sinful, but you trusted a holy God that forgave you. That you were an ordinary person who chose to live for Christ, an extraordinary God. That you were imperfect, but forgiven. That you were gifted by God, in spite of your brokenness, in spite of your mistakes, to be used of his mission. That's what he wants to do in your life. That you were faithful to the Lord and your spouse, that you are lovingly committed to your children and your family and their children, and all of a sudden God begins to build a different legacy in your life. Don't let a decision in the dark determine the legacy for the rest of your life. Because it can happen. Who do you fear the most, friends? You're afraid of missing what the world has to offer you? Or do you have a healthy fear of a holy God in heaven? 
you know what I think is amazing, and this is kind of ironic as I close. The Lord wants us to be fearful of him, to have a healthy fear of our God and his holiness, right? And yet for those of us who know him and love him and fear him, you know what he says to us? Fear not, for I'm with you. Isn't that beautiful? For those of us that fear our holy God, he says to us in love, fear not, I'm with you. It's beautiful and ironic. Fear not, for I am with you. I, I want to close with one last scripture that gives us an example of the boldness that I think God wants us to have in this world, in our families, as we stand in a world of compromise. Our friends and our families and churches, and people, there's compromise everywhere. And we have this one little example here of the disciples standing in a very, what could be a fearful moment. Acts 5, 29. These disciples are filled with the Spirit and they stand before the same council that crucified Jesus. Look what, look what happens. Verse 27, Acts 5 says, And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend now to bring this man's blood upon us, because that's basically what they just said. You killed Jesus. Look what it says, Peter and John, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. I didn't carry the scripture on, but the next verse says that the council rises up and is ready to stone them. They just about died right there in that moment because of that decision. And they were saved by one of the, the high priests, Gamaliel, says, whoa, 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 let's wait just a minute. Friends, they made a, they made a stand for what mattered most. They said, we fear God over you. We know that you can kill us. And you may right now, but that's not what we're most fearful of. We're going to be a people who fears a holy God and does what he asks us to do. So my question for us this morning, who do you fear the most and how does it affect your choices? Do you have a godly sorrow, not just a, a sense in your heart that you wish you didn't do something? Does it lead to change? Does it lead to godliness? Has it led to salvation in Jesus? And then lastly, how will you be remembered? What will your legacy be? And my prayer this morning that we would live our lives with this ever-present reality of the fear of the Lord, a healthy fear of our Lord, so that we, like those disciples, would say, Lord, we choose to obey you, not men. We choose to fear you, not men. We choose to live for you, not men. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for a very interesting story. And I have to believe that Mark included all the details of this sordid family and sordid story and, and wicked man to give a warning to believers, to help us to see this downward spiral in his life so that we don't see it in ours. God, if there's men or women in this place this morning that see some of the characteristics in his life. They see some of these realities, Lord, of maybe a legacy or things that have been passed down that don't honor you, Lord. It can stop now. I'm so grateful, Lord, that your word says in 1 John 1, 9, that you forgive us, that you're, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God, you make our lives as though we never sinned. God, whatever it is that we've done, whatever mistakes we've made, I pray that right now we would come to this choice that we choose you, Jesus. We want to follow you. If there's one person in the sound of my voice this morning that doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, they've never made a decision to surrender their life. Yes, maybe they felt sorry about some things. Yes, they wish they hadn't done some things, but that's not enough. God, I pray that their 
sorrow is a godly grief, a godly sorrow that leads them to this place of saying, Lord, I am sorry for my sin. Forgive me. I believe that Jesus died for me on a cross and took my place, and I need to be saved. Would you forgive me of my sins and change my life and save me and help me to live for you the rest of my life? Lord, may that prayer even happen in this moment right now as I'm praying. God, would you make us a godly people, not worried about anybody else, not worried about family, not worried about friends, not worried about those around us that would say, what are you doing? Why why would you make that choice? And God, may these choices that we make honor you, serve you, be faithful to your word, be faithful to what you've called us to be as a church, that we would be on mission with you, Jesus, to the ends of the earth to make you known to know you as disciples, authentic disciples who make disciples for your glory. God, I I believe that you're doing something special in us. And I just pray, Father, that you would move in ways that messages never could. That your spirit would embolden our hearts. And we pray this morning as the church of Jesus, just as the church did in Acts 4, God, give us boldness to be a witness for you. May we stand for you even in dark places, alone, when the enemy would come against us and there's something on our computer or our television, God, may we turn it off. Something on our phone, may we turn it over and say, Lord, I want to choose you, not wickedness. I want to honor you more than anything else in my life. I make a stand for you. God, help us to be a called out people, living for you in holiness. May we fear you, Lord, above all else. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.